Hello and welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're at home, on your way to work, or at the gym, we hope you enjoy this episode. And a special welcome to our Crux Club Early Access members. You can learn more about that at crux-club.com. Enjoy the podcast. Andy, home from Reuters. How are you, sir? I'm very well. And how are you? I am coping. Let's put it like that. I'm, I'm struggling to stay fit uh, and mentally alert, but I'm coping. Good, pleased to hear it. What about you? Have you been keeping yourself busy? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, we last week was London Metals Exchange Week, which normally is the uh, the gathering of what I call the greats and the good of the global metals industry in London for a lot of partying, free champagne, and sort of too many late nights. Uh, all virtual this uh, year, obviously, Zoom meetings, electronic webinars and all that. But it was still a really good chance to take the collective pulse, if you like, of the metals industry. Uh, you know, um, it always is. It's, it, there's always great talking points there. Uh, as I said, electronic this year, but again, it was a good snapshot of where we are, where we think we are in terms of, sort of like, the metal market. I mean, do you miss the, the conference components? You know, like sliding up someone in a corridor or behind a closed door, or did you manage to get a lot out of it virtually? Um, yeah, I mean, I get a lot out of it virtually because, um, you know, you want to hear what analysts have to say in public. But you're quite right. I mean, the real value quite often is, um, I would call them the, uh, the the meetings over a couple of pints of beer when people are, I mean, are, you know, are much more open about discussing stuff. So, yeah, this time we had to sort of forego that. I have to add, though, that at my age, I'm, I'm increasingly less likely to be at the two or three o'clock morning parties. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just a natural aging process but I mean you're right I mean we I, I did miss that I mean and of course that's where the real conversations take place but I mean we still have a lot of really good uh, uh you know webinar events uh but a lot of good like talking points uh, came out of it I, th- I think there's got to be a graph somewhere which uh based on pints drunk and how much, how useful the information is where I think the first three pints or so, I think you get the good stuff after that, it just deteriorates. I'm sure and by two in the morning, there's nothing happening. Listen, my disco days are long gone, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. As a younger man, I was there for everything. Uh, the last couple of years, I'm tucked up in bed by midnight like a Cinderella. Good man. That, that, that sounds late to me. Uh, right, so we better we better try and extract from you some of the learnings of the of last week from LME, because um, as you said, it's, it's valuable all the main players are there. They've all got a voice. Um, should we talk through some of the commodities? What was the big commodity of last week, do you think? Yeah, for me, the winner was copper. Um, and I think um, that came through very strongly webinar after webinar. And, and, and the reason why, um, as a combination of factors, you have very strong short-term market dynamics. Um, but we also have uh, a really building bullish narrative uh, over the medium term. And that's really linked to what I call the global drive towards decarbonization, right? Whichever way you want to look at this whole, whole sort of like a uh, agenda, you look at EVs, electric vehicles, you can look at smart grids, you can look at renewable energy, right? All of it needs copper wiring. Um, that's building, as I said, a nice future narrative, and it's combining with some extraordinarily bullish market optics at the moment. Um, what are those? Well, very simply, China. China is importing refined copper 
at record pace. I mean, the monthly imports at the moment are running at about half a million tons a month. Put that into perspective, right? If you add up all the visible stocks held by the exchanges of the world, London Metal Exchange, CME in the United States, Shanghai Futures Exchange in China, they hold less than that, right? So that amount of metal is being shipped every month right now to China. And what that is effectively doing is all the surplus metal that was built up during our COVID lockdowns in, in the rest of the world is simply being scoobered into China. Um, I'm not going to suggest that those imports are a true reflection of uh, manufacturing uses in China. China has recovered extraordinarily fast uh, from uh, COVID lockdowns, but not that fast, right? So we are seeing stock building on a major scale uh, uh, down the supply chain in China. So in some ways, it's a redistribution of excess stock. It's been moved from the rest of the world to China. But that's important because once it's in China, it's probably not going to come out again. Or if it comes out again, it's going to come out of manufactured products, like air conditioning units, whatever, right? Um, so that actually has left the rest of the world feeling quite tight. And amazingly so, considering that we saw manufacturing like just fall through the floor, I mean, in the first couple of quarters of this year. And even now, we're really struggling to recover, right? But I mean, it doesn't matter. It's all being shipped to China. And I think that has really, um, as I said, sort of like enthused analysts. Uh, and then you combine that with this building medium-term bull story. That, I would suggest, is why it was kind of the, the, the pick of last week's events. Um, every quarter, Reuters holds uh, a poll of base metal analysts, and we did so last week as well. Copper was also the winner of that poll in terms of analyst expectations for average pricing next year. But there's a really big caveat, right? Um, the, the median forecast for cash copper next year was $6,800 per tonne, up 12.5% from what people are expecting this year, but low spot prices. Um, now, we've had a little sell-off in copper just this week, so we're now at about uh, $6,700 per time. So that's my caveat, right? Analysts like it. In terms of average pricing next year, it seems to be the, the clear winner, but they're looking at a price which is around current levels. So let's not get too excited here. It's not going to be maybe a linear price explosion, but uh, it, that just reinforced the anecdotal sort of evidence I heard during the various webinars last week. Short-term, very bullish optics, a nice building, medium-term bull narrative. So what do we understand about what China's doing in terms of the stockpiling? You know, because they've got a, they'll have a quota that they want to reach, just to have it available for this new infrastructure build that they're doing for the increased manufacturing. I, I guess we'll see whether the West buy, is there to buy the, uh, the goods or not. Um, at some point, they're going to stop. What's that going to do to the price? Um, you know, I mean, we, we have seen this before, and we saw it during the global financial crisis 10 years ago. Um, they are very keen on what they view as bargain basement prices, and they are in farm terms right now, right? Um, the one is sort of like, I mean, is, uh, is strong relative to the dollar. We may look at sort of cotton and say it's a strong price. They look at it and say that's a really good purchase price. Um, I would suggest you have two components here. You have a lot of speculation at the state planner. Uh, the, the State Reserves Bureau is in the market for strategic stocks. It's tremendously secretive. I can't tell you. No one else can tell you for sure. But it would make sense. More importantly, though, 
Um, I think if you put your, uh, yourself into the shoes of a, a Chinese trader, let's, let's think of what they are seeing, right? We have the, uh, the, the Communist Party plenum going on at the moment. We're waiting for the five-year plan. Everyone expects it to be copper-heavy. So if you know, for example, or you think that a state grid uh, in, in China is going to go on a massive sort of copper buying spree, as it sort of like uh, builds up more electrification, it makes sense to be ahead of that curve from a Chinese merchant point of view, right? It, it really is quite simple. If you expect prices to go up, and China is very close to the driving engine of copper, it, make, it makes sense that you see a lot of commercial stockpile building in China ahead of that. But yet, cheap prices in Guam, very important point to remember. Now, we're sort of talking to a lot of um, mining companies, uh, you know, wannabe copper producers. Um, these are big infrastructure projects. These are billions of dollars of, of spend required to get these things going. Um, are you, did you hear anything last week with regards to some of the centers outside of China, like US or Europe in terms of their infrastructure bills, this kind of post-COVID world where we're going to have to kickstart the engine again? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mean, uh, the European Union is the one really to watch right now in terms of we know that they are, uh, are planning a sort of what they call a green recovery strategy. We know that decarbonization will be a key driver of that all positive or actually all metals but copper as well now the big unknown is a little event for the u.s presidential elections next week right uh, mr biden is also promising a massive green infrastructure program you have the possibility of a green drives metal intensive green drives in china the european union and the united states simultaneously um, I'm not going to prejudge what happens next week, but I mean, even without that, what the European Union is, is looking at, which is massive investments in EV charging infrastructure, smart grids, it's all positive news for copper. Then you, of course, I mean, uh, China is not just the recovery. We've had the uh, uh, president saying that they will be carbon neutral by 2060. Wow. Wow. Just think about that. China is one of the biggest carbon emitters in the world. To get there, it will have to electrify massively. Even I mean, it is already leading the, the electric vehicle like revolution. Um, so that's why we're, all eyes are on this kind of uh, meeting this week, uh, and we'll see what the new five-year plan holds. But the expectations are it is going to be very metals intensive, um, particularly when you look at sort of like I mean, a grid build, state grid company. Um, you know, there are rumors, and it's only rumors at the stage, their budget could be doubled from the last five years, plan. What are they going to build? Wires. What do we use for wires? Copper, right? So, as I said, I mean, China's leading, as always. The European Green Recovery Plan is coming together. It's going to be mega. Uh, you've already seen individual recovery plans emphasizing again green infrastructure, EV charging stations, et cetera, et cetera. If we get the same in the United States. You'll have the entire developed world moving in the same direction at the same time. It, it's uh, pretty frightening. But I think that the thing that we should point out here is that we're talking about infrastructure development and not and, and, and a green economy. But that's that doesn't necessarily mean it's dependent on the EV revolution. It's you know that's got a slightly different timeline to it. And um, I, I think people 
don't necessarily think of them as, as separate. So, um, again, what are you hearing um, with regards to, what are your thoughts on the timing of this EV revolution? Because I know you, I read an article of yours with regards to nickel um, in a suggest that perhaps we'll need to sort of temper their expectations on timing. So, I mean, look, it's not been a good year, to say the least, for automotive anywhere, anywhere at all, right? Uh, and that's whether that's internal combustion engines, electric vehicles, everyone has taken hit. Remember during the European lockdowns, assembly lines just closed. Doesn't matter what they were, they just stopped building cars, right? And I think that has really pushed back. Um, you know, I refer to uh, maybe a couple of lost years of, uh, of the electric vehicle revolution, but again, look at those recovery plans that are being unveiled across Europe. They all put electric vehicles as an immediate winner, if you like, because it's something governments can do very easily, right? They were always going to build electric vehicle charging stations, but there's an acceleration of this now. And there's an acceleration of subsidy schemes for electric vehicles. Uh, I would suggest that where China has really led this up to now, the next big uh, accelerator, if you like, will be the European Union itself. But you're absolutely right. Uh, the EV revolution is happening. Uh, I think it has taken a knock as the entire automotive industry has taken a knock this year, right? But I suspect that it's going to come back very strongly as governments really like to be focused. It's a really easy win-win for governments, if you think about it. Um, it, it can like uh, revitalize manufacturing and meet decarbonization goals. But it's only one part of a much bigger picture. As we all know, there's no point in driving a nice, clean electric vehicle if your power's coming from a coal-fired power station, right? So the second leg of this is renewable energy, right? So you're thinking of uh, wind farms, solar panels, um, and you're seeing, again, increasing sort of like, I mean, um, uh, progress on that insofar as governments have stopped talking about this vaguely in about 10 years' time. Projects are now actually sort of like really being accelerated again. And again, these are all very metals intensive, right? Um, and beyond that, well, then you have sort of like your electric vehicle, you have a nice clean source of power, let's say. You need a grid. You need a smart grid. The grid's going to have to handle sort of different sort of like, I mean, uh, uh, functions here for all charging electric vehicles. So all these things kind of go hand in hand, right? You can't have an EV revolution if we're all still burning coal. Therefore, renewable energy has to first start to place. But you can't have that system without the grid being able to handle it in a way that we haven't really built grids in the past. Um, if you look at our, you know, you look at the United Kingdom, for example. When did we design our electricity grid? Decades ago, right? It, it's there. It, it's an old industrial economy grid. If you think about it, they they create energy, they push it out to us. What you may be looking for in a smart grid is, is uh, two-way flows. You may want to charge your vehicle, I mean, overnight. Maybe you don't use it. Maybe you sell that, uh, recharge it into the grid. Our grid's not really capable of doing that at the moment, right? All these things must go hand in hand, if you think about it. Otherwise, there's no coherence to the, the strategy. And I, I, what I see is that coming together in China, and I see that coming together in the European Union, the United States, we will wait and see. We know that Mr. Trump is not a great uh, fan of the, uh, the electric vehicle revolution. We know that Mr. Biden is. So that's the last uh, leg to fall here, if you like. I mean, and all eyes on what happens next week. 
It's quite interesting. I mean, we're in danger of getting into an economics discussion rather than metals there. But, you know, it's a question of spending money to make money to kickstart these um, large infrastructure projects and get the company, a country going again. China, they can afford that. Most of the European countries are, you know, you know, under a burden of a large debt, having, you know, financed their way through um, this kind of COVID period that we're in. So it, it's interesting that these countries are electing to do it anyway. Um, so let me bring it back to, let's stay away from economics. Let's bring it back to metals. So we've established for copper, the demand story. It's there in a big way in, in th those three centers. Right. The supply story doesn't look so pretty. Well, I mean, right now, I mean, obviously, the world has generated excess copper, albeit it's been shipped to, uh, to China. If you look at the sort of like, I mean, the growth scenarios, like a copper demand, let's say even a five to 10 year period, this industry, these, this mining industry, has not got a great track record of meeting demand surges. Right? There's two reasons for that. I mean, it's getting more difficult to find what I call super tier one sort of class copper deposits. We all know this, right? Um, they, we've been mining copper as humans for a long, long time. Um, you look at the, the big mines down in Chile, they've been operating for almost a century. The easy copper seems to, it's not there anymore. I mean, there may be, you know, there, there are still like great resources, say in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but the easy wins are not there. Secondly, you have an industry that historically has been prone to massive uh, unexpected disruption. It could be strikes, it could be sort of like uh, roadblocks or mines in Peru, you name it, it's happened to the copper industry. So you're right, I mean, right now, it doesn't feel that we're in any danger of running out of copper. I'm just saying that if I look at some of these demand projections that the amount of copper we are going to need globally in 10 years time, um, it may not be as easy for the world's miners to sort of like meet that demand as we expect. Um, and, and just incidentally, as a side issue there, um, I think one of the things, one of the things you're going to see on the copper supply side is a much greater emphasis on recycled copper. This is a really forgotten part of the supply chain. And to be honest with you, again, the world, you know, we're talking the United Kingdom. When I started uh, this work in the 1980, uh, we had three copper refineries in the UK, right? One in Liverpool and two in the Midlands. All of them were running totally or partially on scrap. All of them closed in the 1990s. We have been sending our scrap to China for refining, right? Now, um, from a European Union perspective, from anyone's perspective, this is a wasted resource. We're going to need that copper. And also, of course, recycling is very, very environmentally friendly. It ticks that decarbonization box very strongly, yeah? So I'm expecting to see, uh, maybe as, um, uh, as a byproduct, if you like, I mean, of, of these, these trends evolving, a greater emphasis maybe on using scrap copper that we've been spending, sending to, to China at home. Um, that may not be necessarily in new refineries, but it may be manufacturers using more scrap into their mates. So that could potentially be quite an interesting area to look at. Again, it, it's be honest with you, the rest of the world has really neglected this side of this copper supply. Um, as I said, we contracted that, the whole thing out to China. China's got really uh, picky about how, what grades of copper scrap it will take in now. 
you're already seeing sort of like, I mean, those graphs or surfaces uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, that could be a real opportunity. I think, I think a real so. opportunity. I think so. I think we, we've spoken to a few companies, one of them being sort of Neometals, an Aussie company coming into Europe and recycling batteries, just generally and extracting yep. all sorts of um, uh, minerals out of that process. And I think we'll see a lot more entrance into that marketplace. So I, I totally agree with you there. Well, with regards to the, the copper supply side, it feels to me that there's more interest from the institutions to invest into these large copper projects because they're seeing this, this wave of demand coming down the line. Uh, so they, they are investing for sure. I would, suggest, I would suggest there's also a very important flip side, right? Um, institutional money may not be so keen to fund fossil fuel projects anymore, right? Um, copper ticks your green sort of like funding, uh, and most of the metals tick that very nicely. Um, and I, I, one of the things I suspect we're starting just to sort of feel for, if you like, is that institutional money, which is increasingly wary of going down the fossil fuel, well, what do you do with it? Where are you going to invest it? You put it in the bank, you're going to get 0% interest rate. So I, I think that's part of the story. Um, you know, the, those sort of like ESG pressures on institutional money are only going to get more acute. And that poses a real headache. I mean, if you're managing a really large portfolio, and let's say in the past you've really been happy to sort of like put your uh, back, back uh, you know, uh, fracking projects in the United States, a lot of investors are going to say, no, 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 we, we don't want that anymore. So where would you put your money, right? Metals, you know, have a much better, uh, you know, uh, green sort of like a tinge, if you like, than, than the traditional fossil fuels. So that may also be the flip side of it. Money's got to find something to invest in. And if it's a huge amount of money that's flowed into the fossil fuel industry over the last 50 years, right? If it doesn't flow anymore, where does it go? Yeah, it's it's still there, obviously. And we, we've noticed that because I think about five years ago, we were looking at sort of ESG-focused funds could struggle to find, well, more than a handful. I had a look about three weeks ago, around 40 so the money is flowing into these ESG, these green funds, as it were. Um, and I think we'll see a lot more of it. And the big boys are already there, playing the Blackstone Fidelity. They're already there. It's not just sort of these small niche funds. These are the big boys. It's interesting times. But yeah, and the other market dimension to this, I mean, moving away from project finance, is, I mean, again, you look at sort of like, I mean, the big commodity baskets uh, that people invest in, the heavyweight investors. They are all, because of historical reasons, very tilted towards fossil fuels. Um, and I'm picking up suggestions that a lot of uh, funds who haven't really got involved in metals for many years, maybe, are getting interested in baskets of metals again. Exactly the same sort of like driver there. It's kind of like, you don't want necessarily to sort of like be backed by your shareholders every uh, quarter about like where you're investing your money. Um, that could, and I'm not saying the trigger has fully been pulled yet in terms of asset allocation, but I, I'm detecting something shifting in that what I call the, the heavyweight fund money uh, arena. And it's probably negative for fossil fuel uh, contracts around the world, probably positive for metal contracts. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I, wanted, I want to move it on to, I'm just cognizant of time. Um, I want to talk about nickel. Okay, so I've seen a headline, nickel surplus looms as electric vehicle buzz fades. Now that's a headline. 
But based on what you just said a few moments ago, you think that country it, that is the case, but countries are going to play catch up. They're going to throw money at this problem. So do you are you saying that we should be nervous about the nickel immediate nickel future or actually it's going to be okay? Um, well, right now, actually, nickel this morning on the London Metric Exchange has hit a new year to date high, right? I'm going to say to you, uh, we're not going to win many fans for saying this. It's got nothing to do with EV, by the way. Yes. This is really old nickel drivers. This is a shortage of all going to nickel pig iron producers who feed China's massive stainless steel industry. It's a very traditional dynamic that's playing out here. Um, it is exciting. I mean, you know, we, we are reaching something of a crisis point. Um, Indonesia, which was the world's largest supplier of nickel to China, banned all exports this year. The Philippines is really struggling to catch up. Um, so you have this kind of, uh, this dynamic is really sort of like pushing the nickel price at the moment. Um, but let's turn to the EV side of it, right? Here's a fact. EVs account for less than 5% right now of nickel usage in the world. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to increase massively. I have no doubt about that. But if you're looking at what's right now is the key driver, I'm going stainless steel. That's where 75, 80% of all nickels use, right? And, and that's what we're seeing right now. Um, again, it comes back, there's two issues here. Uh, why I think it's not just nickel. You look at what's happening across the, what I call the battery metal space, right? Um, you see, you saw um, Altura uh, Mining, uh, declare, uh, going to receivership. It's a lithium miner in Australia, low lithium prices, right? And remember all the excitement about lithium last year? It's been a bad year for pricing of lithium. It's been a bad year for pricing of cobalt. As I said, the EV uh, story this year has gone into slow and something else though. Um, I came as a bit of a surprise when Tesla, I mean, Tesla has been very vocal about calling for more nickel mines to supply its batteries, right? When Tesla uh, uh, started producing its uh, Model 3 in China, it uses batteries without nickel. It uses an old technology called a lithium iron phosphate. Um, and again, if you're of my generation, you know what those are. They used to drive our milk floats around in, in London streets. I mean, a very low-grade battery, right? Um, but that technology has steadily improved on the quiet over the last three or four years. Um, it reduces the cost massively. They're much cheaper than uh, cobalt nickel batteries. Um, and I'm not going to say that this is the way Tesla's going. Actually, it's just a case that it's such a big differentiated auto market, different solutions for different sort of like amino areas. So uh, Model 3 in China, it's a city runaround. around. Well, only 600, 700 miles. And actually, I mean, we're given like a speed restrictions in most Chinese uh, cities. You're not going to go from 0 to 60 very fast anytime soon. The message here is that the EV revolution is happening, the battery revolution is happening, but it doesn't mean that every battery is going to have nickel in it. And Tesla's just shown us that that's going to be the case, right? So I think that's one of the reasons. That comes a little bit of a shock, I think, to all of us. Um, it, as I said, the story hasn't gone away. It's hit, I call it, it's hit the slow lane this year. And that's a little bit because of, we all got reminded, there's lots of battery technology out there. It doesn't always have to include nickel. And as I said, overall automotive production just had a terrible first half of the year. It will rev up again. Um, uh, what we call a nickel cobalt manganese batteries, certainly in the West are going to be an important uh, component of that. But he chose, Mr. Musk chose a different battery technology for his Chinese production, which they may ship, by the way, they may export Chinese models to other parts of Asia. Many technologies 
you know, I think a lot of people think this is a kind of a binary outcome, right? So it's either got to be LFP batteries, which are old technology, or it's got to be the new ones. No, it's going to be all of them. And by the way, it's also probably going to be hydrogen as well. Such is the scale of the, the decarbonization, so I can be challenged as the head of the world, every technology probably has a role to play in it. It won't just be one, uh, you know, um, uh, it will be all of them simultaneously. So I think that's probably why a little bit, uh, as I said, I'm just a bit wary of the EV story on nickel right now. It's not been a good year for that narrative. It, will not, it won't go away, I'm telling you that much now. I, as I said, there's always going to be electric tingle around the nickel market. I mean, and uh, um, you can already see that in, in some ways in the forward structure of the LME as well. It's you know, a big accumulation of uh, what I call long hedge positions way down the curve. I'm sure it's pink car makers hedging their, hedging their future needs. So it's there. It's, it's a physical reality. But maybe this year, like lithium, like cobalt, it's a slow lane year. Everyone's expecting these metals to bounce back strongly, right? Um, whether it's next year, the year after, I don't know. But this year, slow lane. Great. I like that. So it's different designs for different use cases, but it will slowly, over time, get, get to where it needs to get to. Absolutely. And this comes back to, actually, I mean, I'm a lot more positive about the battery metals now than I was maybe three months ago, because I just read ever more countries giving subsidies to sort of these. A really key one, by the way, was the German subsidy system. You know, Germany has one of the biggest automotive sectors in the world, if you like, right? They chose not to grant subsidies to traditional vehicles, only to EVs. That surprised a lot of my German friends. So, you know, I'm sorry if you're making a fantastic ICE Mercedes or whatever, no subsidies. You're making electronic, yes. That's just kind of a really good indication of the way that governments are going to prioritize electric vehicles. Um, so I'm actually much more um, confident in the outlook of battery metals so as I see more of these schemes being unrolled around the world. Um, three months ago, it did look really bad, uh, but I can see a really fast re-acceleration now um, of EV manufacturing, of course, with EV manufacture, you need the batteries and you need the materials for the batteries. Absolutely. So what did you make of the uh, Tesla battery day? There seemed to be some theatrics to it and some kidology and some pretty interesting things. It was also a mixed bag, but what, what was your big takeaway from that? Um, my biggest single takeaway, and I, you know, I, 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 I've read this, so I'm going to have to go and double, double check this through. Isn't it amazing that I think over a million people have tuned in either live or afterwards to Tesla's battery day? We're talking about batteries. This is kind of like the, mo the most sexy thing, right? That level of interest, though. He wasn't talking about you know, his new cars. He, wasn't, he was just talking about batteries, right? And to get that level of interest, that's my big takeaway. Like batteries are kind of such a hot topic. Um, really, did anyone talk about batteries 10 years ago? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of, right? We, if we were talking about batteries, it was lead acid batteries, right? Um, no, that was my biggest single takeaway. I mean, there's always going to be theatrics around Mr. Musk. I mean, you know, that's just the guy, the nature of the guy. But that was my biggest single, like, yeah. And that's a lot of people getting interested in battery manufacture, right? 
It is. It is. I, I, I liked it because I learned a lot about this manufacturing process, the, the need for efficiencies in the manufacturing process in terms of speed and scale. Well, so what you could do within a limited space and how they were designing these batteries. I thought it was fascinating. Like everyone, I probably imagine there's a few car enthusiasts listening in because they expected the theatrics too. But um, I, I just wondered again, if you heard anything like from last week, what, what did the industry make of it? Because he is kind of showing them up in a way. He is, you know, he's getting the attention. He's getting the attention. Uh, he's making his case. I mean, he's a buyer of metals. So the more metals are mined, better from, the, from this uh, Oscar. I mean, everyone gets to talk their book, right? I think the other interesting dynamic, though, uh, and Tesla's a great example of this, um, and it kind of fits into our green theme here, right? You buy an electric vehicle, and you buy it because you want to do a good thing by, the, by, the, by the, uh, our environment, etc. It doesn't do the manufacturer or you any good if those metals are coming from, shall I put it, uh, dirty origins, right? Um, and I think one of Mr. Musk's priorities, right, he can go and buy the metals he needs, but he wants them to be green metals. He doesn't want them to be associated with mines where the tailings are being dumped in the sea. He doesn't want them to be associated with artisanal like our workers in, in the DRC, right? He wants clean metals, and so will everyone else. And I think one of the little prods he gave the industry specifically with his talk of a North American lithium project is he wants them close to home and he wants to know that they tickle the ESG boxes. Otherwise, what's the point of making a fantastic green, clean vehicle if someone goes, hold on, you know where your materials came from, you really don't want to be. So I think that's another element of what he's trying to do. And I think we'll see this kind of become increasingly important Green revolution needs green metals, right? Um, the audit trails are being built steadily around us. I mean, people, you know, you can go onto the Apple website. They will list every mine and refinery supplying their metal, right? Prior to Apple doing that, no one even thought about that. Guess what? All the other big uh, consumer companies are doing the same thing now. So people want to see, I buy your product. You tell me it's really clean and it's going to be good for the environment. You show me that you have sourced that in the most uh, you know, compliant way that you can. And I don't think it's any coincidence that, I mean, um, he started uh, referencing, oh, maybe there's a lithium deposit in the States, or maybe I don't have to buy it from some. Yeah, that's part of that agenda. Um, whether it happens or not, I'm not sure. But I mean, I think what you're going to see is a lot of big automotive manufacturers and other consumer durable manufacturers starting to look very carefully at where their mines are and where their refineries are. Um, so, you know, you think about that. I mean, we haven't really asked those questions about metal supply chains really in the past. Um, just getting them from a dirty uh, operation or using child labor down in the Congo is simply no longer an option for anyone, right? So you're going to be looking at sort of like, I mean, uh, either trying to transform the industry down there. And to be fair, Tesla's been very supportive of that. I mean, uh, you know, there's lots of projects underway to integrate artisanal mining into the official sector. Very positive. But you're also going to see a drive to um, look at mines, maybe the United States, Canada, Australia, with very high sort of like environmental sort of like standards, you know, uh, as opposed to maybe some of the other uh, countries that we have traditionally sourced materials from. It's, I think it's getting fascinating. And, and, and the question, you know, I, I get it, you know, down the, 
uh, cobalt from the, the Congo using child labor doesn't sound good on any level. Um, you know, deep sea tailing dumps, not good on any level. I, I can see why companies would want to track their supply chain and, and even show their customers that they're tracking their supply chain. But making these demands for cleaner product, and we've seen it with um, uh, Canada Nickel Corp coming up with their net zero, um, you know, they're talking about the you know, carbon sequestration in, in, into their sulfide projects. We've, we've seen it um, in, in, in other companies where they're saying, we can provide a cleaner solution uh, to you, but it's going to cost you. Ha are people going to pay more for a greener solution or are they going to say, well, hey, guess what, mining uh, person? That's your problem. We'll buy that market, but we'll buy from you if you're greener than the next guy. How, how's that going to work? It kind of very much depends on the product. If you um, think about, for example, your, your Apple phone, right? Uh, it contains multiple uh, metallic elements, none of which really determine the price of the phone, right? Uh, they, they're all, I mean, they've all got an input cost, but the phone is actually, the value of the phone is far greater than the input cost of the metal. Right? That's less so, of course, with the electric batteries where the input cost of metals is very high, but coming down, we should say. Um, so it depends, but there's also another element here, I think, which is important to think about. Um, you may not have a choice. Let's take an example of aluminium, right? Uh, which goes into all sorts of things, including his, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Musk's cars. European Union is seriously, I think, going to, within a couple of years, have carbon borders. Um, if your aluminium is not sort of got a low carbon footprint, guess what? It's going to be taxed at the border. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's government sort of like, I mean, uh, overrides coming in here, I think, increasingly. And I just want to throw in another sort of like, yet another element into this, right? Uh, and again, going, looking at sort of someone like Tesla, where they're sourcing their materials. It's no secret that Chinese battery makers have absolutely dominated the supply chain up to now, right? What do we do in a deglobalization environment? You know, you look at what the European Union is saying about it, how he wants to go green. That goes hand in hand with they want to have their own resources. They don't want to be dependent on China or anyone else for that matter. Um, I think one of the things that's not too different between the two presidential candidates is that same drive. We want it either at home, these resources, or we want it from a friendly country. I call it redrawing the metals maps. This kind of concept that, I mean, all manufacturing takes place in China, we don't ask questions where they source their material from and they just ship us other fantastic products. I think those days, I, I think we've reached peak globalization from that point of view. So this kind of what the, the, the European Union calls strategic autonomy, I think it's also a really key factor in terms of the cost of products, right? Um, so it goes hand in hand, if you like, with that decarbonization drive. We are going to probably be looking at sort of not so much a globalized metals flow world as maybe more a regional metals flow world. Um, strategic alliances, Canada, um, America, and Australia in what they call the critical materials uh, area, European Union, Japan, so the world has been redrawn to some extent, and it's kind of very difficult to keep track of all this because you know there's multiple initiatives on the way. But even China, where you'll hear a lot coming out of uh, this week's meeting of the Communist Party, is dual is a dual circularity economy. That means make more in China and keep more in China. Everyone's moving in the same direction. Um, that has yeah massively that has cost implications, but 
um, the consumer may not have that much choice. <laughs> it's, and if it's, not new, it's not a new idea, is it? You know, we, we probably grew up with, you know, you know made, made in Britain, uh, made in the USA. You know, this, this whole protectionism component to this de-globalization is, is in some ways quite damaging to international relationships, but everyone's got to look after their own. And I, you know, we, we talked at the beginning of this conversation about the, there's the China pool, there's Europe, there's USA, North America. You know, they are trying to, well, everyone's putting out these, you know, critical mineral lists. And we're, you're trying to, we're going to fund our own ecosystem. The Europeans have, you know, allocated hundreds of billions towards that and incentivizing people to mine in Europe, which wasn't really de rigueur for the last 30 years. And you know, people are going back into countries like Germany, former you know, and, 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 and the like, Poland, so for mining again, which they haven't done properly for a long time. I mean, in many ways, this goes back to uh, 2010, when China, which is the dominant rare earths producer of the world, um, stopped supplying the export market. They claimed it was because they were having an environmental audit. Everyone suspected it might be about a dispute with Japan over some disputed islands, right? That's when you saw the rare earth prices rocket, but it was a major wake-up call, uh, particularly in the United States. You cannot identify China as your long-term strategic sort of rival in the geopolitical sphere and be dependent on them for every single bit of military hardware that you have. No wars are ever won that way, be blunt about it. Um, I think you're seeing that was the wake-up call 10 years ago, and you've seen momentum build ever since. Um, and then you look at China-US relations now. What if they stopped exporting car batteries? What are we going to do? Those real, there's a real strategic geopolitical sort of like a concern here. And the European Union is waking up to it as well. As I said, it really, really wants to be autonomous if it can be. It's going to be a big challenge for them. I mean, but uh, everyone's singing from the same uh, songbook at the moment. And minerals, metals are kind of at the cutting edge. Of it. They're at the forefront of it this um, struggle, if you like. Recycling. More recycling. And recycling. That's why recycling ticks lots of boxes, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's environmentally clean, but you do it at home. Yeah. Uh, and it's efficient, yeah? And you don't rely on anyone else, uh, you know, uh, for recycled materials. Uh, it, it is a what really one to watch, it might be. You're already seeing that, I mean, uh, everyone's trying to recycle, I mean, uh, electric car batteries, uh, you know, it's still formative uh, technology. That's the way we're going to go, though. I have no doubt about it. I agree with you. I, I want to see more of it. Um, we, I'm going to briefly touch upon zinc, because the thing I really want to talk about is tin. Zinc had a good few months. <laughs> really good. Really good. Um, again, expectations are sort of like being a, a repeatedly sort of having to be adjusted in the zinc market, right? So you go back to the start of this year. Um, zinc had a couple of uh, a good price performance in the last uh, couple of years, but as always happens with commodities, strong prices mean more supply, right? So we were all kind of battening down the hatches, I think, in the zinc market. We expect a lot of mine supply to come in, almost to wash over the market this year. Um, well, that just simply hasn't happened because of coronavirus. Well, I call the lockdown lottery, uh, which countries had to take lockdowns in their mining sectors. Yet yeah, zinc got hit harder than any other metal because uh, three countries in particular, Peru, Mexico, Bolivia, massive producers, massive suppliers to Chinese smelters. 
all took huge hits. And, and some of them haven't got back, by the way, right? They are still operating below capacity. So we're kind of having to, I think, collectively readjust our expectations. We have not seen any massive surplus of mining material. In fact, the market is running short of it. We have seen Chinese smelters, particularly in the first half of this year, struggling to maintain production. Um, you always know that Chinese smelters have feed problems when they take up early maintenance shutdowns. You saw that right across the second quarter in China, right? Um, now, having said which, um, that's where we are now. Uh, market's readjusting its views about sort of like, I mean, oh, well, this is not going to be such a big year of oversupply then. Um, it may be building, though. Uh, the International Redensing Study Group, I mean, issued one of their uh, annual forecasts last week. Um, they're looking at big surpluses of refined metal this year. We've seen some of it show up on the London Metal Exchange, not all of it. But here's the thing so far, just in the way I was talking about how China had basically cleared excess copper out of the rest of the world, China's imports of zinc, not that strong so far. I think there's great expectations. We might see some good arbitrage flows. But so the excess metal is here, it's sitting here, it's weighing on, the, you know, on, on price. You don't see it so much in price, you see it on the spreads on the London Metal Exchange, which is super loose. And you have seen quite chunky deliveries into LME warehouses. Um, I think there's nervousness about how much more potential the zinc price has from these levels. These are strong levels for zinc, right? Um, you look at next year, I mean, look, I mean the, the ILZSG, the best statistical global body we have, is looking at a surplus of 1 million tons this year and next. Um, if that is in any way correct, I'm a little bit skeptical of really how much further zinc can, have, can, can go on the upside. And, um, but you're right, right now, now it's got the momentum. Uh, the momentum funds love it. They're all playing it. And, you know, market can go a long way before like uh, fundamentals or rationales or like you know, determine anything. So it's very much, yeah, it's the one in vogue right now. A little bit wary of it, right? Okay. That's fascinating. That's really insightful. Um, helps us elsewhere. Something else that we're looking at. Um, so let's talk about tin. Okay. So MIT did a study and came out with something quite surprising. So why don't you tell us what that was and uh, maybe we can talk about the tin market. Yeah, this is the, uh, the tin is the forgotten critical metal. Um, so yeah, MIT did a study, it was commissioned by Rio Tinto um, about a year ago. And the question was just, hey, look at all the new technologies out there and tell us which metals are, are gonna sort of like be, be the winners out of this, right? Um, and tin one. It'd be lithium, it'd be cobalt, it'd be copper. You know, this is really surprising, right? Um, I happen to know that the International Tin Association was itself surprised by this outcome, have had to run off and do their own research now. But the answer is actually quite obvious if you think about it, right? A man of my generation, when I think tin, I think of one product, the tin can. Yeah, uh, non-perishable goods, long-term storage, right? Um, you know what? Tin plating now counts for about 14, 15% of global tin usage. You know what the biggest usage is? That fit half of it, nano soldering. Every like circuit board that you can imagine is soldered together with tin, called the glue of the internet. So what MIT was looking at was whether we're looking at EVs, which we're gonna need more sort of nano soldering in their electronic circuits, but particularly what we call the fourth industrial revolution, the internet of things, machine learning, all this kind of groovy stuff from the science fiction. It's all going to be held together by appliances using nano soldering using tin, right? 
Um, it is on the US critical minerals list. It's not on the European critical minerals list. I would suggest that's because there is one big producer, refined producer in, uh, in Europe, uh, Metallo, which is now part of Norddeutsche Refinerie, or Arubus as uh, it's now called. Uh, so they do have a, a strong domestic supply, the US doesn't. US is a massive importer of tin. So that might explain why it's on one critical list and on the other. It's one of the very few differences between the two. The really interesting question is, one of the things we're kind of expecting to see out of this uh, meeting uh, in China this week, the next five-year plan, is whether they decide to stockpile what they view as critical minerals. Tin is under discussion. Now, bear in mind, China's the biggest tin producer in the world. And if it's thinking about, man, maybe we need to build up some stocks here, they are probably looking at exactly the same dynamics of that MIT study. Remember, China wants to own the new technology race, right? It wants to own solar panels. It wants to own electric vehicles. Maybe it's also waking up to, hey, we need a bit more tin than we have here. Um, China is the world's largest producer. It's got big mines, but actually in the last few years, it's become really dependent on raw materials from its southern neighbor, Myanmar. Um, there's a couple of uh, China's biggest producers are pretty much only treating mine material from Myanmar now. The problem with that is those deposits are degrading really fast. So I'm not going to try and second guess I mean, uh, what the Chinese Communist Party uh, decides on this one. For me, even the fact it's on a potential hit list, metals they might want to stockpile, tells you that we're not talking about tin cans anymore here, right? They're looking at exactly the way that MIT is looking down that road. What holds all these machines together that can connect our virtual and artificial intelligence worlds right at the moment? Tiny, tiny bits of tin soldering. Amazing. Tin, the glue holding the future together. Yeah, but the, the, and that was the MIT finding, basically, right? Um, I don't think even the tin market is particularly, you know, it, it's still getting its head around this, if you like. I mean, it's not been a particularly strong market over the last few years. Again, you know, uh, tin plating has, has kind of like, it is a dying industry. They're using ever like thinner coats of, uh, of tin and the steel. We're also using aluminium or plastic packaging. And I think the entire market has got a bit fixated on this declining usage area and slightly forgotten about what may be coming around the corner. Uh, that MIT sort of like analysis really kind of like was a wake-up call, I think. Myself included, by the way. It's, it's interesting, yeah, if people have certain perceptions. Well, investors, you know, we're, we're talking to their perception about certain metals. You know, nickel, no one thinks of it in stainless steel. Copper, the green revolution coming down the line. I think people do do get that, um, but it, it, yeah, interesting. And um, so, what's the what's the mood of the nation, um, Andy? You know, we 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 look like we're about to go into a cycle which the precious metals are benefiting from because there's nervousness about the economy, all of this quantitative of easing, what the future holds, U.S. elections, amongst many things. And so, precious metals are doing well, but for these base metals, these battery metals, you feel that are we about to enter a, a positive cycle for all of those? It feels that way, but look, I mean, if, if I had to use one word to describe the current sentiment across the base metals complex, it's uncertainty, right? We have a one-legged sort of like recovery in terms of metals demand. China has bounced back, I mean, with virtually zero economic scarring as far as I can see. As you and I both know, sitting here in the UK, this is simply not the way the rest of the world is following. We have a stop-start recovery. Frankly, we're going to be completely dependent on whether we can contain the pandemic, 
Um, there's a pretty gloomy forecast out there for, uh, for demand, for metals demand. Serious economic scarring could take place. We could be you know, below pre-COVID levels for a couple of years yet. But it all comes down to what a government's going to do about it. If they really deliver on their green infrastructure revolutions, yeah, that will not only reboost the economies, but of course, it's going to be massively metals intensive. Um, so uncertainty right now, there's just too much in the mix. I know the US presidential elections particularly, I and mean, this has become normal for all financial markets, maybe apart from gold. Take the money off the table, let's see what happens first, right? Um, and then roll that into, as I said, where the rest of the world is in controlling the pandemic. Yeah, uncertainty rules right now. I mean, I think that you know, conviction generally across the investment space in metals is pretty slow. Uh, everyone's on, on, on hold. Everyone's waiting to see. We know China's recovered. We just don't know what the rest of the world looks like. What I'm, guess I, I, I'm saying is that what I'm reading, what I'm seeing uh, in terms of recovery plans, in terms of uh, decarbonization, in terms of sort of like I mean, uh, renewable energy, none of this happens without a massive usage of metals such as copper, tin, aluminium, yeah, all of them basically, right? The only question is when does that really take Root. When does it kick in? When does it gain traction? Um, not this year, too early, right? Next year, maybe the year after that, almost certainly, growing momentum. So uncertainty now, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of buzz, I think, and quite rightly so, about the medium-term outlook. But before we get there, there's a little thing called COVID-19 that we have to get under control, right? Um, and you're not going to see, I think, the investor conviction really come back until you see... Uh, you know, those, the, uh, the, the pandemic control. No, I, I'd agree with that. I, I, it's, um, we need that kind of positivity from the government to put its money, invest money into things which are positive. Infrastructure is, is great. I get, always get nervous when the gold price goes up because it means something's wrong. It's telling you something, right? <laughs> it's a great uncertainty sort of like a mean, uh, metal, right? So if it's up, it's almost telling you itself how much uncertainty is out there. I mean, the way I, uh, the way I expressed it is uh, quite recently, so when I look at sort of like, I mean, demand profiles for uh, something like copper, right? There are sunny uplands ahead. But before we get there, we've got quite a long, hard slog for a year, maybe longer. I don't know. And no one else knows at the moment. You know, we, the demand pitch is really across the metallic board, very strong. But when do we get there? That's the key question. Uh, and it could be, have a hard road and a bumpy road before we start reaping the rewards of that yeah it's the nature of markets that they try and anticipate what the future is um and that's one of the reasons copper is actually quite high in price at the moment funds are sort of like trying to get ahead of that curve um it, they could equally sort of get out of the copper price if things just don't pan out well over the next six months yeah yeah it'll be better for the soul if uh, if these base metals and battery metals uh, do do well because it suggests there's some good things happening in the economy. Uh, last question, gold or silver? Oh, one of my great privileges in life is I don't do cover precious metals. <laughs> <laughs> give, it, give it, give it, give it, give it. What's your thought? Um, gold's had such a great run, hasn't it? Um, and I kind of wonder whether it's kind of, it, it, it's, had, it's had its run, basically. Um, Silver's kind of more interesting, I think, from that point of view. But as I said, it's my great privilege that I don't have to worry about the gold price, um, which is a very, very difficult market indeed. 
oh, there's there's some there's some great people out there with some very strong views, as you say. Wise man. Andy, thank you so much. What a run through. Pleasure what a run. As always, nice talking to you. Yeah, yeah. It looks like, um, I mean, like I say, you're prolific as ever, and people should be going to the Reuters and looking at some of the articles you're producing. They're fantastic, they're insightful, they get to the point real quick. So um, appreciate your writing and appreciate spending your time with us. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to have a chat with you. It's always nice to catch up, yeah?